Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of All Things Evangelism. This is where we talk about things pertaining to the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the evangelistic call that we've all accepted in the Lord. And today, we're going to talk about the spiritual battle in evangelism. And I've got Pastor Ben Ray from Coffs Harbor Church with me, and we're going to talk about, yeah, the fact that evangelism is not just a work, like a normal job that you do. It's a spiritual ministry that requires God's help and God's assistance. So thanks for joining me, Ben. Uh, appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And I guess because we're talking about the spiritual battle of evangelism or in evangelism, we should probably pray. Good idea. You want me to do that? Please. Father in heaven, please pray your Holy Spirit on us right now. Please give us your truth, your insights. Send your Holy Spirit to speak into it, us and help us to pick up what you're wanting us to pick up today. Bless us and keep the enemy away. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Yeah, hey, I notice sometimes, I don't know if you notice this, Ben, this is how I'll kick off the conversation, that when it comes to evangelism, we can put a whole lot of time and energy into planning and preparing, which is good, which is really good to plan and to prepare and to strategize. But sometimes we can fail to put in like spiritual preparation or consider the reality that this is a spiritual work where we're calling for God to help us by the enlisting of angels and the Holy Spirit, because there are devils and demons and powers that are unseen that, that we're contending with for the sake of the salvation of, of souls. And I heard this guy say one time that in the, the Pentecostal reality, Jesus is doing his ministry for three and a half years. He's working, he's sowing seeds, he's cultivating interests and showing the kingdom of heaven. That's all happened, yeah. But then once he ascends to heaven, the disciples are praying and waiting for the promise of the Spirit. And he said they're praying for 10 days. And so there's a lot of pre-work, a lot of preparation. They've been preaching through the whole ministry of Jesus. But he just made this really interesting point. He said, for 10 days, they prayed. And then they preached for one day. And then they baptized thousands of people. He said, you know, in my ministry, I'll prepare for 10 days, a couple weeks, and then pray for about 10 minutes and do an evangelism mm -hmm. series for a month and baptize one person, two people. Right. He said, yeah. maybe we should be praying more. What do you yes. think about that? I think he's spot on. I'd love to share this um, from The Great Controversy. It's page 510. And it says, while Satan is constantly seeking to blind their minds to the fact, let Christians never forget that they wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of this darkness of this world, and against wicked spirits in high places. That's the quote out of Ephesians 6. We will have a look at that in a minute, but let me keep going. She writes, The inspired warning is sounding down the centuries to our time. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So that's from Peter. And then she writes, From the days of Adam to our own time, our great enemy has been exercising his power to oppress and destroy. I wonder if we still really believe that's going on. It's, she writes, He is now preparing for his last campaign against the church. All who seek to follow Jesus will be brought into conflict with this relentless foe. That is interesting. All who seek to follow Jesus will be brought into conflict with this relentless foe. Do we really realize that that's even going on? Then she says, The more nearly the Christian imitates the divine pattern, the more surely will he make himself a mark for the attacks of Satan. Wow. What do you think about that? Heavy. Yeah. 
Do we take it seriously? And it's then she goes on, we must have the whole armor of God on and be ready at any moment for a conflict with the powers of darkness. Now, I've got to just say, I don't like that. I think that sounds exhausting. We must be ready at any moment for a conflict with the power of darkness. There's times where I'm spiritually engaged, I'm praying, I'm, I feel like it's I'm slogging it out, and then I just get tired and think, I'd just like to have a break now. But she's reminding us, the devil doesn't go on holidays. He doesn't have a break. And I guess we've got to get a balance in there somewhere. We can't drive ourselves into the ground. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But even when we're resting, we can be resting while having the armor of God on. The thought that comes to me is that she's indicating that we have to have some spiritual fight in us because we're marked. You want to follow Jesus. You love what he stands for. And you want to enter into his kingdom and you want to live under his rule. And now the devil's like, oh, you do, do you? Okay, yes. so now you're a marked person. And if he's got if he's got a person in the back, if he's, you know, if he's got control over your life, he doesn't need to target you. Right. I mean, he can, he can manipulate control and destroy you, but mm. you're not a target because you're not a threat. Yes. That's but if you're, in the, if you're in the spirit of God following Jesus, that's a good quote. What a yeah, good quote. Yeah, she writes there. She says... The more nearly the Christian imitates a divine pattern. So it's basically saying the more like Christ you are, the more you're going to cop it from Satan. But not necessarily, because if you're wearing the armor of God, you're good. His attacks don't work. And so it's not, because if you didn't think that way, you'd think, I better not become more like Christ because I don't want the devil to hassle me. That would be a mistake to think that way. The more like Christ you become, you naturally are also putting on the armor of God, which he put on. And it means increasing in faith, increasing in truth. And Trusting that everyone's probably heard this passage before, the, the armor of God, the belt of truth. We need God's truth. Um, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And so how do we get more faith? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So are we actually in the scripture? So this is a call to, to get ready and get real in the Christian walk because If we're going to make a difference in this world with Jesus in our lives, do we? some of us are like having a quick prayer, reading a Bible verse and rushing out the door and hoping to win the spiritual battle. And I just, part of me wishes that you could do things that quickly, but I'm realizing his stories of Jesus getting up early while it's still dark and praying. It's because there was stuff to pray about. And if someone said to me, at different points in my life, how could you pray for 10 minutes? How could you pray for 20 minutes? How could you pray for half an hour or an hour? What would you say? I think that once you get in amongst it and you're having a go at witnessing, sharing your faith, trying to be obedient to God, you start to have a list of stuff that you need to pray about and you kind of figure it out along the way. And we all need to learn about prayer, the power of praise, the power of asking God for help, the power of intercessory prayer where you're asking for God's will to be done, the power of repentance and confession, all these are important parts of prayer. And if we do include them in a daily prayer, like Jesus said to in the Lord's Prayer, it is going to take five minutes. It is going to take 10 minutes. It's going to, and, and before you know it, you're going to going for 20 minutes, half an hour, because there's so much to talk to God about. So true. You know, in Matthew 16, this just came to mind. Jesus is talking to the disciples about who he is and Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus blesses him and tells him that the father revealed that truth to him. And then he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And then he says, and the gates of hell 
will not prevail against you. Yes. I heard a sermon at one time where the preacher pointed out that gates are things you put around something to defend it. So if a city gate or a gate around your house, to, but gates are not things you use for offense, they're things you use for defense. And right. so when G, he said, he points out that when Jesus says to Peter, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against you, he's saying, you're going to storm the gates of hell as a soul winning evangelist for me. And those yes. gates will not stop you as you pursue the goal of, of rescuing people from the devil. And I think that's something that we have to realize when not only you become a Christian or in a special way, the enemy of darkness, but when you decide, okay, I'm going to participate with God and with the church in the pursuit of saving souls. Mm. Now you're, you're coming into contact with those gates of hell because yeah. the devil's not going to just give away his That's prey. Right. Like if a lion captured a wildebeest and you kind of came over and decided you're going to steal a wildebeest, it's probably not going to go too terribly well for you. It's not going to be right. easy anyways. That's it. And so I guess I want to jump across to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. And it says here, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. In another version, it says our weapons are divine weapons. What for? To knock down the strongholds and to destroy false arguments. And so God is inviting us to use divine weapons to destroy satanic strongholds. So Matt, I just wanted to talk for a minute about what are these divine weapons and what are these satanic strongholds? Before we talk about the weapons, let's just talk about this, the strongholds. I think that these strongholds, if you're thinking in the natural world, a stronghold back in the day, think about the guys taking the promised land. The first stronghold they got to was Jericho. Jericho. And it was this big city with tall walls. And we know the miracle story of how they marched around. And think about how those actual physical walls fell. In that physical battle, even then, it happened in a miraculous way. They uh, were obedient to God and the, and the walls fell. So I would say that one lesson there is a divine weapon is obedience to God. What do you reckon? Hey Amen. That's heavy. That's such a good illustration. And this speaks to the fact that it's the power of God that wins success over the power of darkness, not our power. That's right. And, so and it, God it, seems particularly interested in making sure we know that. That's it. That's it. They're not to divide. And I'm not, I never want to try to take away from planning and preparing and sitting together in a room and strategizing how we're going to win people. And that's fine. That's right. I think God wants us to do that because mm. he, he likes us to exercise our intelligence and our brains. It's both. We've got to do both. That's right. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's being aligned with God and in harmony with his will that brings success. And if we have to understand that. And I love this example that you bring up because... The promised land was not attained because people had the ability in themselves to get yes. there or because their plans were so amazing. It was that they followed God as he led. And, and so in obedience, with obedience, I love what yeah. you're saying there, Matt, with obedience comes trust. It's part of the equation, isn't it? I'm going to obey you because I trust what you've said is right. And my observation is that growth happens when we obey God and so what am I talking about? God's inevitably going to ask us to do things that are difficult, that are outside of our comfort zone, and he'll do a miracle when we're trusting him and obeying him. Walk around this city seven times and, and then the walls come down. That's obedience and trust, isn't it? And then one guy disobeyed, Achan disobeyed, 
and they tried the next campaign and it failed miserably when it should have been an easy win in the natural realm. And again, disobedience is the opposite of a divine weapon. It's going to destroy our success. So that's one thought. I think that the response that is to that is repentance. So after there's been disobedience, there's got to be repentance. And I would say that the people repented with Achan's sin and they responded to it. And they said, we're not going to do this again. We're not going to stand for that in our community. And, um, and they dealt with that. And then they moved on with new success. So I would say, as well as obedience, another divine weapon is yeah. repentance. Repentance is a divine weapon. What do you reckon? I think it's a, that's absolutely the case. Like I've seen that not just scripturally, but in my life. Mm-hmm. And until you, until, ultimately until you relinquish your hold or your grasp upon that sin, that disobedient act or that whatever it is, you're, how, however you're resisting God, you're blocking mm-hmm. access to the Lord because God is not, he's not going to force his way into your heart to rescue you or even into your life. So I think you're 100% right on it in my life. When I'm unrepentant, yeah, the devil's just sitting there, just consolidating his power and his control right. over my life. And I'm almost like protecting the devil. By being unrepentant and maybe even confession. Like when you're unwilling to confess, it's almost like you're providing shelter for the enemy. Yes. That's how I, I've the Bible, experienced it. The Bible puts it in these words, don't give the devil a foothold. It's He's got a handhold. So if you're imagining a climbing wall, a tough climbing wall is something that's just dead flat and smooth, maybe leaning out, impossible to climb. And an easy one is where it's virtually got a ladder going up it, right? And when we have sin in our life, we're basically giving the the devil a nice ladder to climb over our wall and take over our lives, take over our churches or whatever. And so I think if you're talking about spiritual preparation for the spiritual battle that goes with evangelism, that there needs to be a personal searching of the hearts and a communal searching of the heart as a community. Has this community repented of any corporate sin that we might have had in our community? Now, this is not some small thing that's going to happen easily. If you're going to address corporate sin in a church, there might be like, how awkward is it to bring it up? And so then, and is it appropriate to bring it up? Or was it really just personal sin? And personal sin, that can be a challenge to be addressed. But corporate sin, I think a double challenge to address it. And and that's where we need elders and pastors to have some spiritual discernment to think, is there something that our community needs to repent of? Is that why we're not moving forward here? Is there something even from a long time ago? I want to give you a couple of stories to help you consider the fact that some of our churches that have been stale, stagnating and going nowhere for years, it may be that they're still held back by a foothold the devil was given decades ago. And I don't know about you, but I can think of a bunch of churches that I've encountered in my life where they've been that they, there was a church fight or something went wrong and then the numbers went down and they've never recovered. And people come, people go, pastors come and go, and the churches virtually just stay the same. And I wonder how many of our churches have got some stuff that's in the closet that we have left there and thought, oh, it's in the past now, don't worry about it. So take on board these couple of stories. So David is king of Israel and a famine comes over the land. David consults the Lord. Why is there a famine? God tells David, your predecessor, King Saul, attacked and killed the Gibeonites who are under our protection. 
and that's why you've got the famine today. Now, that doesn't sound wow. right, but that's right. what's in the Bible. And so maybe my understanding of what's right and wrong is a bit off. And so David is called to be accountable for something that he didn't even do, that his previous guy that he didn't agree with, he wasn't in, he wasn't always doing what Saul wanted because Saul was off the rails, and David's called to account for it. And so it's a pretty weird story how they address it, and, and they actually kill some of Saul's descendants, and that's another whole confusing topic to consider, but just let's move on from that and just accept the fact that they did address it, and then God was pleased with that and removed the famine, and they were blessed again. So that's interesting. So there's repentance going on there for something that happened virtually a generation earlier, and then the blessing continues. And then you get the same thing in the life of Daniel. Daniel's about 80-something years of age in Daniel 10, and he prays this prayer and says, God, Jeremiah the prophet said after 70 years we'd be able to go back, and we haven't gone back and reestablished Israel, and we're still in captivity here in Babylon. Then Daniel prays this incredible prayer of repentance, and I think repentance is a divine weapon. Listen to why. He prays this prayer of repentance as if it was he himself who'd built these Asherah poles and had been worshipping Baal and sacrificing. You read that prayer of repentance. He says, we are sinners, God. You were right to send us into captivity. We've done the wrong thing. Was it him? I bet you it wasn't him. When he was carried off as a 17-year-old teenager, he was like one of the handful of righteous people left. There's no record of Daniel ever sinning. And yet he prayed as part of a community, as if he was right in amongst the filthy actions that they were doing. And so what's my point? My point is that as a community, we can't say someone else did that. It's none of my business. I think we've got a biblical precedent. And actually realizing this has changed my perspective on some of these political apologies that have been given. Because I thought, well, I wasn't there when that happens. None of my business. But the Bible seems to, the Bible seems to be saying, well, in the case of Daniel, in the case of David and other examples in the Bible, that God is saying, I'm still hanging out from this community for an apology for what went wrong. <laughs> and so yeah. he hasn't gotten old or forgotten about it. God remembers. And he's saying, and this community knows what's happened. Have they ever said sorry for defacing my name? And if you go to the special prayer of King Saul, uh, Solomon, at the time of the inauguration of the temple, he says, Lord, bless this temple. And he says, but if we ever are sinful and you send us out into captivity and we turn our hearts back to you and we repent of our sins and we say we're sorry for what we've done, will you hear from heaven and heal our land? And that's where we get that famous verse in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God says, if you repent, if my people who are called by my name repent of their sin, and turn from their evil ways, I will heal from heaven and heal their land. It's God's promise. And that's what exactly what Daniel was claiming, that Bible verse. And I wonder if some of us as individuals or as whole church communities need to do some repenting to get the full blessing of God activated again. I love what you're saying, brother. I love it. I, with the whole idea of repentance being a spiritual weapon, I couldn't agree more. And the church's that I've worshipped in over time, not all the churches, but in many, there's a culture of sweeping it under the rug. So the way people are operating is the product of generations worth of behavior. So, yes. so if you have dysfunction, 
and it's passed down and down and down and down. You could be in a situation that is so out of whack when it comes to, it's just so out of line with God. I think people don't realize and understand that. So it's like- There needs to be discernment though, because some people would say like in a sort of legalistic zealot way, let's get the sin out of the church. I'm actually not talking about that. Like some, when I've seen a, I've seen an unhelpful, unchristlike manifestation of that spirit. Let's get all the sin out of the church. You're going to get all the sin out of the church. There's going to be no one left. I'm not talking about that. There's certain things that are corporate or clear or outstanding that God is calling to an account on. We all sin in our lives every day, and we need to be taking that to the Lord every day. We're not talking about removing all sinners from the church. Think about when Jesus said, a, a smoldering wick I do not snuff out and a bent over reed I do not snap. Mm-hmm. And so we're not talking about going around like zealous, the Inquisition, stomping out the people who've been annoying you in church for the last 10 years. But what I am talking about is if the Holy Spirit has highlighted something to your church leaders and to yourselves, maybe you've had a season of fasting and prayer and something has come up something has been brought to the attention of the church, then have the humility and the hunger for God to lay it down and say, God, we want to ask for you to cleanse us of this and we want to do something about it. And there's what's clear in Scripture. And when it's evident that what is clear in Scripture is not being lived out by the church proper, then it, it can and it should and it must be addressed. And to think that we could just continually keep peace when there is no peace. There's that verse in Isaiah that says, they heal the hurt of my people slightly saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. And so we can't, and this is a real gut check for all of us, for every individual believer, is are we peacekeepers or are we peacemakers? And it seems to me what you're talking about is peacemaking, and that's where repentance comes in because that brings peace, true peace. Like, Like when God was speaking to David, like he'd expected then David would not be a peacekeeper. No, 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 no. Right. Like something, do something that about it. a grand injustice was committed. And God wasn't just going to allow future generations to pretend that that hadn't happened without some acknowledgement, like yes. some official acknowledgement. And David, you know, something else too, I think when it comes down to that whole recognizing and acknowledging a past grievance or a past injustice that a society had committed or a government had committed, To me, it's not so much about saying, hey, I'm to be blamed or you're to be blamed for what some other group of human beings did. It's about taking like corporate responsibility because we're part of this corporate entity. So I'm not just my own. Yeah, we're all bound together. Like I'm a part of the fabric. When one part suffers, every part suffers. When one part is blessed, we're all blessed. Absolutely. The body of Christ. That's right. And and something else is, is when people, whether I just, I find this in my life, like taking responsibility is not taking the blame all the time. Sometimes it is taking the blame when you're to be blamed. But taking responsibility is not taking the blame. It's taking responsibility. And I think it's awesome what you're talking about. And it it opens, I think, our hearts in a way that allows God to bless us more. That's my thinking. But bro, yeah. okay, so I was just going to ask you in regards to evangelistic ministry and mission, how could, in your mind, David repenting or acknowledging in repentance what his dad had done or what Saul had done, his predecessor. And uh, yeah, just Daniel doing what he did as standing as representative of Israel saying, hey, Lord, he's really acting as an intercessor. That's right. Intercessors in a way kind of take responsibility because they say, hey, I'm going to stand as a representative of these people and on their behalf. Job did that with his kids too, right? When he made sacrifices for them in case they had sinned, he's saying, God, 
I'm going to be the priest of my home and take responsibility for my kids, even though I'm not to be blamed for the sins they commit, but I'm going to stand up yeah. on their behalf. It's really loving people in a sense. It's, it's yeah. showing love and care for the people that have been hurt or maybe who are in sin or whatever. But I just wanted to say, how can that affect us positively? And what have you seen in your ministry to be the effect of that? Okay. By the way, before I said Daniel 10, it was Daniel 9. And he's a bit of it. He says, I pray to the Lord of my God and confess, Lord, you're a great and awesome God, but we have sinned and done wrong. We have refused to listen to your servants. Lord, you're in the right. But as you see, our faces are covered with shame. And so he just included himself right in there with it. And I just think that he was coming to the Lord because he's part of the people. So another example of this. Hey ben, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to, sorry to interrupt you. It's a bit yeah. Jesus-like, isn't it? Because well, he jumps into human flesh and human blood. And he considers himself our brother, even though he didn't. He never participated in our sins, so but he, he joins into the human experience to atone for what we had done. He takes responsibility, right? Like, it's awesome. Spot on. Spot on. Talk about taking responsibility for something that you didn't do. Yeah. Like, that's Christ. Great. We see it again in Joel chapters 2 and 3. Joel chapter 2 is the famous sort of latter rain passage. And so... It has a call to repent. And so, again, this is kind of just summarizing where we've been. Like as a people, can we repent of our sin? As individuals, can we repent of our sin? As church communities, can we repent of our sin? And it says here, return to the Lord in prayer, fast, turn away from your sin. And then what will happen? God says, I'll pour out my Holy Spirit in those days. He says, I'm going to restore you for the years the locusts have stolen. And so my observation is, when we repent of our sins, we genuinely humble ourselves before God, then his blessings can flow freely. And as a parent, I cannot lavish treats on my kids right after they've been naughty because I would be totally negligent as a parent to do that. I would be rewarding bad behavior. And you got to understand, God wants to bless us. But if we're nonstop engaged in doing something wrong or corrupt, how can he bring his full blessing? Now, Understand that even in churches where there's a lack of sort of fronting up to some of these issues, God's still at work and the dynamics are complicated and you can still have some wins along the way. But the more honest we are with God and the more truly humbled and repentant we are of our sin, if there's something that's needing to be addressed, well, it opens the door for God to bring a fresh wave of his blessing. Times of refreshing will come. And so I just believe that God sometimes is holding back not because he's wanting to hold back, but because it would be irresponsible of him to bring his full blessing. And that blessing can look like success in terms of church growth. And so, and you got to think about it as well in this way, is God's, God's got lost sheep out in the community that he's longing to bring home, but can he bring them home to a, your community? Is it a safe place for him to bring them home? Are they going to find godly role models there? Is it a safe church for new people to be brought up in? Is the word of God upheld? Is the, are the relationships loving or are they legalistic? Is there a bit of a mean spirit in some people in the church? Or is it a, is it a church that's very loving but struggles to teach the full scripture and the full message of the Bible for fear of becoming legalistic? And it, you might be in a church that the pendulum swung from one extreme to the next. And so these are all common things that we can struggle with. And God is longing to bring lost sheep into our churches. And the healthier we are, 
the more people we're going to be able to handle. That's what I think. So true. So true. But man, there wasn't there a king in the Old Testament who, when his borders were threatened, God basically comes to him. He's freaking out. And I, I'm, I'm so Hezekiah. Is that Hezekiah? I was going to say Hezekiah, but I wasn't sure. And God's like, okay, just have a song service. No, that's just that's Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. And they just have this song service where they're singing and praising God. And it, yeah. it affects a victory. Like God intervenes right. on their behalf. Because that's in another that situation, form of, that's another divine weapon. weapon, isn't it? That's it's what praise. I was thinking. It's praise. praise. Is another weapon. The, the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. It's a public verbal acknowledgement that God is king and our trust is being placed in him for victory, for success, and for salvation. And our arms, our weapons, they're not sufficient. And it's funny, hey, oftentimes the, the ancient kings of Israel would fast and pray when they were being attacked by a foreign enemy. And I thought, well, that's the last thing you need to do physically, right? Like you need to eat. You're going to have to go fight. Sure. To fast at that time is a sign that it's not physical strength we need. It's spiritual yes. strength and it's yes. God's strength that we need. And I think that's really, that's just another weapon that, that came to my mind is I think is it's, a great, it's a great thought to finish on because it's such a positive and uplifting thing to do. It's a faith-filled thing to do. I believe the song that they sung were, God is good, his love endures forever. And, <laughs> and they just repeated it. And sorry, all the people who say that you shouldn't repeat words in a song, but they just had two <laughs> lines and they repeated it like wow. again and again. And while they were saying that, the armies destroyed one another. They like the enemies turned against themselves and they didn't even get their hands dirty. They just, they, the name of the place where that happened got changed to the name, the Valley of Blessing because they got so much loot and plunder and they never even lifted a sword. I don't, know if you've ever heard of, yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, Ben, but they in World War II when the German armies on both fronts were defeated and the Russians in the United States were sandwiching Berlin and they were getting ready to just fully take the city, the Germans began to break out in partying and revelry and literally just kind of start to have these big parties and galas and balls because it was like almost this weird psychological reaction to the fact that the world had just you're on the verge of taking over the world as the Germans are about to take over Europe. They're dominating. And then all of a sudden, the tide of the war turns. You're about to be defeated. The whole world's crushing down on you. And they're like, well, mm -hmm. what do we do? Well, let's get drunk. And they just, there's these videos you can see on YouTube of these Germans and these parties. And there's Russian tanks 20 miles away. And it's not going to be good when the Russians get here. Not at all. Because they're not going to really be forgiving for what you did to their country. So anyways, it's, it's I'm only bringing this up, this up because that was like, this insane, weird, fear-filled reaction to a tragedy that was ensuing. But on the flip side of that, you have the people of God in Jehoshaphat's scenario, and they're called by the king of the universe, the one who loves and who has saved them and who's promised them an eternal destiny with himself and a glorious purpose in life. And, and they're just trusting in him, singing in the face of this you know, horrible enemy that's threatening their lives and their children and their family. I mean, it's just... It's a horrible situation, and I, I find it so cool. That'd be a real cool movie to make if you could, if you had a couple million bucks and you were a Christian filmmaker, to just make a film about how a victory was won by a group of people who just praised God. Praise God. Amen. And he interceded on their behalf. But hey, yeah, thanks for, thanks for chatting to me. But bro, before we finish, text that goes right along with so much of what you shared today in regards to repentance and confession is that, that text in James where he says that we should confess our, our faults some versions say sin, one to another. 
And I think it's in chapter five, four or five, but I think it's in five. But I find that to be so right on with what you're saying. You, all of our church family members have to be willing to be open with each other about the things, not just that we've done wrong, but the things that we do wrong that are inherent to us as a person. And this, this allows there to be more trust and understanding and it's better a genuineness. Yeah. And, and people like genuineness. God likes genuineness. We don't need to spill every detail, but we can say, you know what? We, we've done wrong. I've done yep. wrong. And let's come before God and ask for a fresh start. That's it. Well, hey guys, thanks so much for, for joining us again. And yeah, thanks Ben. I've really enjoyed this thanks conversation. For having me. It's been a blessing. My perspective is broadened and I'm very encouraged by, by the things that we've chatted God bless you guys. We'll look forward to chatting and and hanging out with you again next week. Take care.